0: You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Leanna Renee Heber. (music) literary alchemists i'm dave robison and i'm brian humphrey and you're listening to a special showcase episode of the roundtable podcast 20 minutes with
1: 20 minutes with is a segment in which dave and i have the great honor to share the microphone with some fabulously talented people and today is certain to be filled with not only nuggets of gold but magical mojo as well
0: (laughs) indeed indeed uh, Brian, you, you and I come from an acting background, so you know yes. that there are two basic types of actors, the, the technique actors and the method actors, right?
1: That's right. Yes.
0: So yes. what, and you, how, how do you see the difference between those?
1: Well, the, the way that I would explain it for me is that method acting, if you have an emotion to portray, if you have to cry, you think of the dog that died when you were 13 years old and it puts you in that emotional state. And so the emotion itself is real. Whereas in a technique actor, mm-hmm. It's somebody who has studied the emotion, studied what that looks like, and can recreate that in as truthful of a way, visually, as possible.
0: Exactly. Yes, precisely. Now, you know me, Brian I've always been a huge fan of method acting.
1: Yes, right? and I have always been the opposite. But exactly, that's okay. which
0: is why we make good co-hosts. Um, that's right. But, but I'm all about totally immersing yourself in a character and surrendering to it until every word and gesture comes from the heart. Absolutely. For, yeah, because that's, for me, that's the essence of authenticity. Now, I think that writers kind of work the same way. Uh, and if that's true, then there is no question what school our guest host comes from. Uh, Her stories achieve their compelling and immersive power uh, because our writer lives literally in two worlds, gracefully walking the line between the world we all know and the world that caught her heart as a child and lured her away, the world of the Victorian era. She may take her mail here, but she's watching us from the vantage point of a mystical, wondrous, and shadowy place in time. Now, it all started with ghost stories. As a child growing up in rural Ohio, which I think is the origin of most ghost stories these days, those those spooky tales captured our guest host's imagination and she devoured them with an insatiable hunger. And when there were none to be found, she'd make up her own. In fact, one fateful night when she was seven or eight, she was regaling the young ladies of her Girl Scout troop with one of her own spooky tales and using a handmade ceramic electric lamp as a prop now (laughs) apparently some of the hardware was less than secure because as the tale reached its horrific climax her finger slipped onto a live wire and the girls screamed as as our guest hosts long straight blonde hair literally stood up on end and she began to convulse and gibber Now, it's a testament to her commitment to storytelling that, to this day, our guest host considers the possibility of imminent electrocution as an acceptable risk in evoking an emotional response in her audience. You have got to respect that. Uh, Then, at the age of nine, she saw Oliver Twist. And the Victorian era latched onto her imagination and never let go. As a preteen, Edgar Allan Poe informed her evolving sensibilities. And it was around this time that she decided that Phantom of the Opera simply could not end as it had. So she began to draft a sequel, set, of course, in 1888. Now, briefly as a child, she flirted with becoming an ornithologist. And while to this day she can identify almost every bird in America, uh, it was a different call that lured her down the rabbit hole. Brian, take a guess. Take a, take a wild stab at, at the, the dark halls that our guest hosts studied in college. Well, theater. Thank you very much. Ding, 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 ding. She graduated from <laughs> Miami University with an MFA in theater and a focus on, what a shock, the Victorian era. Now, think about that a sec, friends. Theater, Victorian era, Edgar Allan Poe. All right, you realize what she had become. She was a goth. In fact, she was the only goth girl in a college of 16,000 people. Now, confronted every day by strange looks and questions of, why do you dress that way? You gotta know, she wasn't just making a statement or trying to fit in. She was expressing herself. She was being herself, and screw the rest of y'all that couldn't wrap your heads around that concept. Now, she pursued her dreams of theater with the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company, and she began adding to the world's awesomeness by adapting the works of 19th century literature for the stage. And in breathing theatrical life into those works, she created works that have been published, awarded, and produced around the country. Now, her fiction career began with, interestingly enough, not a gothic tale of Victorian mystery, but rather a sci-fi tale titled Dark Nest. Now, Brian, do you remember when we were talking to Emma Newman and, and she entered her first writing competition because of a triple dare from a friend? Sure. Yeah. Our guest host was equally challenged by her companions, who challenged her to write something other than the eerie Victorian tale she was so immersed in. Now, not only did she do it, not only did she write the sci-fi book, but Dark Nest won the 2009 Prism Award for Best Novella. In fact, since then, her works have received four Prism Awards for excellence in futuristic fantasy or paranormal romance. And by the way, just to prove the sci fi thing wasn't a fluke, she wrote a sequel Dark Nest The Reckoning, and that's available on Amazon right now. Her debut novel, The Strangely Beautiful Tale of Miss Percy Parker, First in the Strangely Beautiful saga of gothic Victorian fantasy novels, won two 2010 Prism Awards for Best Fantasy and Best First Book, and, Brian, you gotta love this, is currently in development as a musical theater production. Oh, hell yes. Oh, hell yeah, exactly. Now, don't think for a second, friends, that that came easily. Strangely Beautiful is a novel nine years in the making. See, our guest host was was blurring genre lines and and writing the truest story that she knew and a story that publishers simply couldn't wrap their heads around. Thankfully, Dorchester Press had a bolder vision of the market and its readers and launched the book into the world. Uh, Darker Still, a novel of magic most foul, uh, uh, was inspired by a combination of a Sesame Street sketch and Oscar Wilde's The Portrait of Dorian Gray. Uh, And this was recommended by the American Book Association, uh, a a Scholastic Book Fair's highly recommended title, and a finalist in the 2012 Daphne du Maurier Awards for Excellence in Mystery Romantic Suspense. The sequel, The Twisted Tragedy of Miss Natalie Stewart, was released last November. She just signed a book deal with Tor Books for a new gaslamp fantasy saga, The Eterna Files, releasing in 2014. She's an actress, yo, so she's been filming, actually, uh, with the Horror's Tale crew, uh, a brilliant fan-driven project set in the Harry Potter universe. In fact, she's a member of the Actors' Equity Association and SAG AFTRA and works often in television and film. She's also a proud member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, Romance Writers of America, and the International Thriller Writers, and is a co-founder of Lady Jane's Salon Reading Series in New York City, an ongoing romance reading event whose proceeds benefit the Women in Need nonprofit organization. She's frequently seen strolling, well, just about anywhere, in full Victorian garb. And friends, if she's wearing black, which I'm betting is most of the time, check closely. You'll likely see some white hairs from the rabbit she rescued from a laboratory, who, by all accounts, is one of the biggest consumers of her books. Literally. She feeds them to the rabbits, and he eats them clean, gladly. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome one of the perkiest goths you will ever have the pleasure to meet, Liana Renee Heber. Liana, thank you so much for making time from, holy crap, I can only imagine what your day timer looks like, but thank you for making the time to 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 share some thoughts with us. We really appreciate it
2: thank you um i've been laughing this whole time quietly it's it's very odd and surreal to hear your whole entire life story um <laughs> so that's uh, that's pretty incredible thank you i'm very glad to be here and the the bunny is looking at me very curiously with all of
0: this <laughs> you, see, you got another book for me there yeah, absolutely well liana uh, let's let's not waste any time i'm eager to get into this and i know brian is too so let's start our is. 20 minutes with Leanna Renee Heber, I will set the timer. We'll ignore it, and we'll move on. Um, yes. Leanna, I, I in in researching your background, I, I discovered that you are a raging pantser, um, which I, I think will will receive a lot of resonance from many of our of our listeners, um, uh, and that you you write in a very visual, nonlinear way. Um, And also that the revision process, when you're knitting all of those narrative bits together, is one of the parts that you really hate. Uh, And quite frankly, that's what I want to get into. Um, I, I, I was wondering if you would be willing to tell us... Uh, just walk us through that process of, of you've gone through the first draft, you've you've spooged on the page, you've danced linearly to the beginning, to the end, to the middle, you've built all of this stuff, and now you need to create a coherent narrative from it. What do you do? I cry. <laughs> first, absolutely. Pour a cup and, of tea. <laughs> yeah, and,
2: and a glass of wine at the same time. Yeah. And, and then I cry a little bit more. And then, no, it's, well, there no there really is tears. Actually, that's very true. There's lots of tears and there's lots of mixing of caffeine and alcohol. And then it's really for me about um, looking just at the overall storyline and making really sure that uh, each of my characters has a bit of a beginning and a middle and the end. Now, the side characters, not so much, but my main characters have to, I have to make sure that they're, goals and their needs are tracking and that the plot is supporting that especially with this last novel that i was working on it really the first eternophiles book nearly did me in because it's a large cast of characters and it it, we're focusing on two different locations and i'm going back and forth between them so just keeping track of them was was very very difficult so as i've you know i write chapter one chapter five chapter twenty chapter whatever and then i'll go in and out and then i'll fill in the details and it's it's actually, my favorite thing is once I actually have have put the whole thing together. That Actually, I do love the revision process, but once I've actually created a full, final, finished first draft, then I actually enjoy editing. But it's, it's that specific process. The hardest part for me is when I have all the pieces, but then I don't have the connective tissue between them. And that's the thing that I just have to sit down and do it. There's really no science for me with that It's that I have a deadline, and it's something that I have to do. I know that I don't like doing it. Um, I love writing, but this part is pulling teeth, is putting that connective tissue from one sequence to the next. And definitely critique partners help. I I really love sharing with a very tiny, very tiny select group of people. Um, I'll read aloud passages and see if they work, see what sort of questions are evoked and raised in that. I'll pass chapters on to a few different people. And, and then that early critical process, um, that early critique, early eyes on, is very, very important, especially on a book that I'm having trouble with, to say, sure. okay, here's where you're going off, veering off course. I, I come, you know, as you know, being theater people, um, we come from a collaborative background. Um, even though writing is so solitary, I was always drawn to theater because it was different than my writing world because you were creating a piece of art together. So for me, my relationship with my editor is the most important relationship in, you know, in, in my creative life by far. And I trust my editors very, very deeply. But I don't want to turn into my editor something that is not a cohesive narrative, something that doesn't have um, a, a good plot structure doesn't have a good um, character arc. So I really need to make sure that before I turn anything into my editor, it's gone through a couple of eyes. People who think that their work is gold straight through – I that's it's not true. Um, (laughs) You're you're delusional if you think that. I mean, the minute that the minute that any famous author says I don't need an editor is the minute that their books go off a cliff. (laughs) It's so true. And we've seen it, too. I mean, I'm not going to mention any names um, because they're authors that I love, deeply love, who are very influential to me, who have who have who have done that, who have said I don't need an editor anymore or 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 even just the houses um, think the, edit- the the authors are too important and then don't edit them hard anymore. And, and their books really suffer for that. So, um, for, for me, I think that, um, knowing the parts that I love and knowing the parts that I hate is really critical in just sort of saying, okay, now I'm doing the fun stuff. Now it's the grindstone stuff. And you just can't allow yourself to walk away from it. Um, now, thankfully I have a professional deadline. It's a little bit easier to walk away from it when you only have personal deadlines so um, my sure. suggestion on that is to um, set an external deadline that someone else makes you accountable for, and that will become a more solid deadline than if you just say it yourself.
0: That makes good sense. Yeah. Le- Leanna, can you walk us through one of those connective tissue rebuilding moments from Past projects, or or because that's such that's such an ephemeral concept. I mean, you it's hard to articulate. But but do you recall any specific element that maybe you could set up as an example of how something was disconnected and you had to reconnect it?
2: Um, let me think. Um, Putting um, you on the spot there. Yeah, no, it's it's this is good. Um, I. A, a lot of this past novel i mean my my head is going to be in the eternal file, the first eternal sure, file, sure. because that's what i j- i literally just turned in 2 weeks ago and uh had been up spending late nights for for about a, a month and a half of very little sleep um <laughs> as i was pulling into the finish line here and um i think it was things that were disconnected um i i had to look to the characters to connect them because the the, the world building is all fine and good but if you don't have strong characters, then the world itself is not interesting if the people that inhabit the world are not interesting. So for me, especially when I have a, a lot of characters, I need to make sure that everything that I'm doing is character driven. So um, realizing that some of my characters are sort of floating without much to ground them. So making sure that I built relationships between some of my side characters where there hadn't necessarily been relationships before, Um, making people good friends that actually had previously been acquaintances so that there could be a few drops of character backstory laid in so that it wasn't me taking this narrative license of, Dropping in a a paragraph of backstory like, well, you know, Bob, this is what happened then, (laughs) you know, and so, and so trying to make, you know, establishing, figuring out how can my relationships within my characters mean that I have to do less backstory info dumping in my narrative and allow for the relationships to be a character reveal. Uh, my, My main character in, on the British side, I have two dysfunctional paranormal offices, one in New York and one in London, and my my uh, it's more fun if they're dysfunctional.
0: Absolutely, <laughs> um,
2: my, my London office, my my um, chief of that office is a is a skeptic, and he's very very irritated by this appointment to this paranormal office that the Queen has given him, and goes to visit his father, who is a Gothic novelist. And he and he rebels against everything his father stands for, you know. And of course, me being a gothic novelist, this is a great way to make fun of myself, (laughs) um, which I enjoy doing. I mean, I'm also not only am I a perky goth, but I'm definitely a self-deprecatory goth as well. (laughs) (laughs) It goes both ways. And and so I think for me, I didn't Spire was groundless a bit until he had that connection with his father. That was a later scene um, that I wrote later in the novel because. Spire didn't have anything to tether him to London particularly. He was just this guy who'd been given this appointment that he didn't like. Okay. Um, and so and so for me, just realizing that the characters needed this connective tissue, not only to make, not only for word count and page count, but, but to tether them within the world. And I was looking at some of my favorite shows. I'd been watching a lot of Fringe. Fringe, one of the best sci-fi fantasy shows of all
0: time in life. Oh, my life. God, yes. Uh,
2: one of the most beautiful shows. And you know, coming into its final season, and I was like, what do I love so much about Fringe that I don't have in my book right now? And I thought about the relationships and how how beautiful and spectacular that relationship between Walter and Peter is. It's you know, and, and it's not something that's common on television. It's very unique. Um, I, I've never really quite seen anything like it just on TV. Um, the the details of that relationship were just so gorgeous to me, and I thought I don't want to replicate that exact thing, but Realizing that there were these familial relationships that I didn't have, and thusly my characters were were kind of um, a little more two-dimensional until I started kind of refining them, and and then just trying to make sure that my connective tissue, and liter- when I mean that, I mean I mean chapter one going into chapter two, and chapter two going into chapter three, the connective tissue from what makes a chapter end, and then what makes the next chapter begin, trying to make sure that I'm ending on little tiny itty bitty. Suspense hooks at the end of certain chapters and then picking up a narrative from another point when I'm switching back and forth between Two different offices. It's hard to keep track of that narrative now. We'll see in revisions, and it'll be interesting to see um, Once I get revisions on this uh, My editor might come to me and say you know what we need to divide this book into half of it being in London And then part two is in uh, England or uh, is, is in America rather or vice versa It may be that the back and forth ends up being too dizzying for the narrative. I'm not sure it's going to depend on house style and what they want. And I'm absolutely, absolutely flexible on structure because I really love characters and I really love atmosphere. Structure and plot for me are very flexible. And because I'm nonlinear, I don't always necessarily have the best structure.
0: <laughs> hence hence the value of, of those second and third eyes taken away.
2: Absolutely. At. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, excellent. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Leanna Renee Heber after this brief promotional break.
1: Welcome to Reader-Writer. My name is Ben Delano. And I'm Mary Ellen Warren. Hi, Mom. What is Reader-Writer about? It's about reading.
0: I find it really difficult to do actual, you know, tree killers.
1: Yeah, well, okay. It's about audiobooks. The enjoyment of a book is so subjective, isn't Mm -hmm. it? The different format you're listening to or watching or reading. Actually, it's about any written media. This movie is essentially, you can break it down into three one-hour-long TV episodes. And sometimes how it's written. Watching that and realizing that really made me... Think about how you construct a story. I get a totally different perspective from it, and I think that's
0: one of the huge differences between
1: reader-writer. Or breaking it apart in details.
0: Oh, you're so anal, Ben.
1: <laughs> when you're writing, you do actually start to think of these people as being alive, and you don't want to do anything mean to them. Visit readerwriter.ca or find us on iTunes.
0: Now, let's get back to the conversation with Leanna Renee Eber.
1: Now, do you, uh, you, you talk about, you know, when you're writing the chunks that you're the most passionate about, and then you have to do the work of the connective tissue, do you find any difference in style or voice in that writing when there's a difference in the way that, that you have to approach it?
2: Yes, absolutely, because I'll go back and look and be like, wow, I hated writing those paragraphs, didn't I? <laughs> <'Cause> I- <laughs> It's like the stuff that I really love writing is the real juicy stuff where my description is really rich and the atmosphere is really set. So what I have to force myself to do, because I'm so visual, I have to make sure that um, the details that I put into my full scenes that I love writing are then also in the connected tissue. That's just I end up going back and making sure I just paint a picture or throw in a few more images to make it pop just a little bit more because I, I don't necessarily have all of that going for me if I'm literally grounding it out. Uh, I have to right. force myself to put, um, somebody asked me the other day at, at the conference um, that I was just at, um, asked me about, because my books are so descriptive and atmospheric, how do I do that? Um, some writers are really great about description and other writers are great with dialogue but then the description stuff just baffles them. And so I, my response was, well, you just have to act like you have a camera on your shoulder and you are following your characters through the world as they're seeing it. And you just have to see what they see. And when you sort of take that, you know, in their eyes approach to going up a staircase and seeing what they find as they go up the staircase, the images will come if you put yourself in the situation. So right. it's, and, 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 it's, it's funny, the, um the, the method actor stuff that you mentioned earlier, because, sure, sure you know, it's, I, I have this love-hate relationship with method acting. I think a lot of method acting is total bullshit. And you know, <laughs> oh, me too. I do, I do. I do. I think it's total <laughs> bullshit because you should just be al- allowed to just act. You know, I, I think all the emotional recall stuff from Stanislavski is total crap. Um, Sweet.
0: Eat. Oh, we're going to get down. After we're done with this interview, we are <laughs> so outnumbered. It is, I don't care. I'm taking you both uh, okay, on. Okay, but,
2: like, but Stanislavski later sort of recanted some of that stuff anyway. So like the, the, the Europeans got the whole method. We, the Americans only got half of it. So that's, <laughs> um, and, and they didn't quite get the matured other side of it. And I think, I mean, I believe completely in allowing yourself, like immersing yourself in the world that you're writing about. Absolutely. But when it comes down to it, we're making stuff up. And that's just that. I just happen to have a whole lot of fun with it. When I immerse myself in in the dress and and the visuals of the Victorian era, for me, that's playtime. But it's not me thinking that I have to do that in order to write a good story. Um, it's just something I enjoy. That's the world in which I feel most comfortable with. I feel, strangely enough, comfortable in a corset, you know, and and <laughs> and all the trappings and things like that. I've always been so drawn to that. That is very me. I don't necessarily think I need all of that to write a good Victorian tale. So no, I represent not. all of it. It's great, you know. It's great visual branding for someone, you know, to look at me and say, "Hey, I like your outfit." And my response is, "Well, if you like my clothes, you'll like my books." I dress like I write. So <laughs> you know, and it becomes that, that's actually gotten me quite a bit of sales. So I think <laughs> um, I think the um, the, uh, the the stuff that's the the stuff that I that I get tripped up on. Um, is stuff that I'm not allowing myself to have enough fun with. Mm. So that's that's the stuff. I, I look at it, and it, and, it re- and it reads like it's perfunctory and it reads like I was you know, grinding my teeth to get it done. And so I just have to make sure that it doesn't have a different stylistic uh, bent to it because I, I do have a lyrical tone uh, in my work, and I want to make sure I always maintain that. So just going but once it's, once it's written, I have a lot more fun, in tweaking with it and just sort of uh, messing around with it. When something's on the page, I get less panicked because it's, I know it's, it's, it's less emotional, like sweat and tears to get it out onto the page. The first draft process um, is, is, is the hardest part for me, I think. Um, And it's, and I, I deeply enjoy those first moments when I'm putting all those exciting things down on the page. And then it's the, the stuff that's the slog is, is that is the other um, the parts that I know have to be written so that the story makes sense. Uh, and then I just have to go back once that's all done and then just sort of give it the same kind of delight that I did in writing the stuff that came first. Um, yeah. And then okay. and then also when, when the um, when new ideas come and a lot of times the new ideas will be because a critique partner says something or you know, the, the fixing stuff. Sometimes the fixes are my most exciting things. Cause I, I think, Oh my God, why didn't I think about that? Now it's so much better. And you know,
0: <laughs> <at> that moment,
2: <laughs> when you know, it's going to be so much better than it was before. And that's such an exciting, thrilling, thrilling thing.
0: As you rip out right. thousands of words and then re, re, <laughs> recraft them. Yes.
2: Uh, hopefully, yes. hopefully not necessarily ripping out stuff. I think you can, a lot of times, I mean, yes, you're going to sometimes need to ditch entire things, but I think, you know, it, it, authors get really worried and sort of really tense about the stuff that they're going to have to lose. And no, you just change it. It's like, at heart, you're not necessarily losing things. Um, I did have to scrap a character in interna because I just had too many people. And I thought, you know what, that's okay, that character will come back. I will save that character for another day. And I think maybe that sometimes you need perspective. Like, um, I am... Um, I have a um, short story coming out that actually, by the time that this airs, it will already be out in Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, which is an anthology of Gaslight Fantasy that that is um, publishing, and my character in that tale has been with me for 10 years, and I had not been able to figure out where in the world I was going to put him, and I tried all these different iterations, and so he finally has a moment. So I think when when people get worried about this, about editing, what they're going to Keeping what they're going to lose. Just know that you don't have to lose anything forever.
0: <laughs> that's good advice. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And if nothing else, you know, write a short story and showcase him there. And if nothing else, give him time to flesh exactly.
2: out. Exactly. He, didn't, yeah, we didn't. It didn't work. He did not have the character and his premise. It was not full length novel material. And I just had to realize that his medium was going to be the short story. Well, and that's... So sometimes. That,
0: and that's so cool that Tor picked it up too. I mean, that's just kind of a vindication that yeah, this was a cool story idea. This was a good character yeah. and and a good setting to work around. Absolutely, Leanna. I wanted to ask you just just in in hearing you speak about the the, the joy that you have and and the the perspectives that you bring to this, I, I'm I'm reminded of of a Kurt Vonnegut quote about writing to one person, and I I, I that quote really struck me, and I've noticed that in my writing. Uh, uh, there tends to be someone and they don't have a name. They don't even have a face necessarily, but there is a person that I'm writing to there. As I write, I'm thinking, Ooh, this, this, entity, this thing is the person that I want to please, that I I want to titillate or, or, or make scared or whatever. And I'm wondering, do you have that? Do you have a, a, a person or, or a focus when you're writing that you're targeting, you're writing towards?
2: Absolutely. But it's more esoteric. It's not, it is not one person for sure. It's, it's a sort of a spiritual host. I truly believe in past lives. And I believe that there are elder energies that have been pushing me all my life since I was very young in these veins in the 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 interests that I have in my work are all very clear uh, interest in spiritualism interest in spirits and ghosts and um, the, the, the shadows between life and death and all of those various things uh, the paranormal all of it fascinates me and I feel that there's been elder energies pushing me along. And I can't necessarily quantify them. I don't necessarily know their names or what they look like. All I know is that I've been pushed very hard by them for a very long time. And so I am writing for those energies because I'm basically writing for my muse because I feel like these are the energies that are, that are kind of keeping me going and propelling me forward when I'm feeling lost. So for me, it's those elder energies. I do feel like a reincarnate Victorian. Um, So for me, the only way I can really make sense of living in this timeline, and I'm saying this with utter seriousness, is because I'm here to write these books. And so that can sometimes be a very daunting mission. It feels like there's a lot more weight on this than I necessarily want it to have, but it just is. So it's, it's very much my calling in life. And so these... These elder energies and these other things and these other possible storylines, these threads, who knows? I mean, I don't think I'm writing past life stories specifically. I know very clearly that I'm writing fiction. I mean, I'm not completely delusional. I know that I am writing <laughs> genre fiction that I w- hope will be marketable and will sell copies. I mean, you know, I'm not completely detached from this, from the from the material realities of this timeline and what it takes to, you know, make books and sell books. But I'm definitely writing with an eye um, I, I loved how you described um, watching from this other Victorian timeline. I very much actually feel that way uh, because I do feel like there's part of me that's here. And then there's a part of me that's hanging out in the 1880s. And so for me, it's it's writing to placate that part of myself that is in the 1880s. So I'm writing both to to me and to all of those elder energies that surround me.
0: That's awesome well and and yeah. and, I, and I think you know wh- whatever our listeners uh, uh, take on on the paranormal or spirituality or whatever is I, I I think there's there's a sense of when we when we approach a writing project whatever it is there's some trepidation and some some sense of uh, I don't know duty uh, uh Brian help mm-hmm. me out here do you feel that when you dive into it yeah well I <clears throat> I, there's always that nagging voice in the back of my head that that
1: it, what I'm doing is not good enough and the question is not good enough for who yeah exactly you know like, like who, who who is it that i'm that i'm focusing that on and that i'm afraid of disappointing and it's not you know it's not a readership because i haven't established that yet
0: sure Sure. and so, and leanna you're not necessarily keeping your readership in mind either I mean obviously as you said you you want them to be marketable and enjoyed and and, and delightful but you took nine years with your first book uh that, that had no place and just kept plugging away at it because that was that was the story you wanted to tell right
2: absolutely I, I thought you know if I can't if I can't make a, a home for these kinds of books then I then I'm obviously not meant to be a writer because these this uh, the strange and Beautiful storyline and then all the other iterations since then all have very similar themes. These are the themes that drive me to write. And so if, if that doesn't have a place, I mean, and I did try. I tried to write what I thought was going to be like a contemporary um, paranormal romance that was targeted towards a certain amount of genre staples and all that stuff. And it was the most horrific thing <laughs> that, has ever been, like, that will ever see the bottom of my desk and <laughs> never the light of day. And, and so I did try to see, I've tried a bunch of different things out of this genre and, and I just don't, I'm not, I don't have any interest. So so that's, it's true that, that you really do have to kind of mitigate the voices of, of both the industry and the voices of your own, you know, inner critique and your own inner, um uh, confidence and all that kind of stuff um, but then you really just do have to write the books that you want to write and then be willing to to adjust them accordingly um, when they do find a home if it's a good story a good story will out it just has to find the right place and with the with the digital landscape changing uh, publishing is changing every day we have no idea where we're going to be in two years so um, there's not monolithic uh, certainties anymore there never really has been and there certainly aren't now so it's just a matter of staying true to your, to your voice, to your characters, to the plot. Always be willing to make that even better and sharper and clearer. And I think you you will, you will please your readership if the readership that's found your stories if you continue to, to, to do what you do well. And the fact that my, my readers love that I continue on with the same characters. And I'm bringing characters from Strangely Beautiful into my next series and into the next series by Eternophiles, Files. Characters from all of my series will, will I, I save for the futuristic ones, Will, will say hello at some point. And that's, you know, I'm not doing that uh, just for marketing. I tried actually to avoid that, but um, I'm not doing that just to please readers. I, I'm glad that readers like it, uh, but I find that the worlds really just are parallel. And why sure. why, write, why write another trope that's exactly the same trope as, say, Alexi from Strange and Beautiful? Why write a character that's just like him to serve another function when I can just bring him over um, rather than, you know, rehashing the same things. We're all, a lot of us are drawn to the similar themes book to book. We're just looking at it from different facets. I feel like it's a, I'm looking at a gemstone and I'm always turning it and seeing a different refracting piece of light as I turn it. And that those are each one of my stories are dealing with these similar themes, but from a slightly different perspective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well guys, I, I hate to jump in like this, but, but yep. the, the the clock has been sucked into a portrait uh and has been frozen <laughs> and locked away. So I'm I'm guessing that means we're out of time. Um Leanna, thank you so much. This yes, this is yes. this has been marvelous. Um your your perspectives uh have certainly sparked some ideas for me and I I'm, I'm sure uh for Brian and for our listeners are as well. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure.
0: <laughs> Brian, what are you taking from this one, man?
1: Um, I think the 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 nugget for me was you don't have to lose anything forever. Yeah. That was the big one for me because there's so much, so many times that I am afraid to to cut a character or to cut a, a concept out because I love it so much. But you know that doesn't mean that I can't use it again some other time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, nothing, nothing dies. Nothing is lost. Right. Right. So, and for me, uh, uh, the the connective tissue discussion really, I, I find so many times, both with the, the the stories that we workshop on the show and with my own work, that that we start off with, ooh, what a cool idea. And and the idea and the world building is what captures my attention initially, and then you start evolving these characters, and and I'm finding more and more that I I really need to reverse that, uh, I need these characters to be the driving elements or components, or or at least the next thing after understanding the type of story that I want to have characters that embody and typify that that thematic thrust, that thematic yes. core. And that yes. connective relationship just creates that webwork, that framework that everything else builds on. So that's that's good mojo. That's uh, gold. Yeah, it is. It's literary yeah. gold, and that's what we're Absolutely. all about. Dear friends, thank you so much as always for for hitting the play button and joining us for this 20 minutes with. Um, if if you're feeling the joy and you're feeling the love, and I know you are, because because we are, we're all floaty and, and pink right now. This is awesome, or, or or black and shadowy, one of the two. I'm not sure, but um,
2: <laughs> I'll, I'll take the latter.
0: Yeah, I kind of figured. Yeah, floaty and pink is not really the. Vibe nah, not there. really my style. Nah, but but it, however you're feeling, if you're feeling something, then <laughs> ride that feeling and 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 share with the world the wonder and glory of the roundtable podcast. Podcast, And let folks know that this literary gold is just out here waiting for anyone to pick up. Uh, A review on iTunes is always appreciated. And as always, many, many thanks to those who have done so. Let folks know about the website, www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. And on Twitter, at writerspodcast. Uh, So now, friends, I know know you're sitting here going, where is this all going? Where is this going? I, I happen to know. I have inside information. That the workshop episode that's happening in a couple of days is going to be not only fabulous, but a unique challenge for this particular group, and that's all I'm going to say. Uh, uh, you're going to have to tune in in a couple of days and find out why that workshop is going to be such a unique delight and a challenge for our this particular group of workshopers. Uh, but between now and then, there's there, there's time to kill. There's stuff to do. Brian, what what's what stuff is it going to be? Do you know? Yeah, Oh, go right. Go right, absolutely. Fill the world with your awesomeness. And friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for cool. Look for, oh, hell yeah. And you will find it, I promise you. We will see you in just a couple of days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by The Roundtable Podcast, and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented hepcats of BroTown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host or learn more about The Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.